Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshayim at Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Ayeshev, the rhyming of Jewish history, Joseph, and anti-Semitism in our time. So Dana Milbanks is a, an op-ed writer for the Washington Post. And about a month ago, he wrote a piece where he was talking about the rising anti-Semitism in this country. And he begins the piece by talking about his rabbi on Yom Kippur, giving a sermon. His rabbi is Danny Zemel. He's the grandson of Rabbi Goldman. So there's a Anshiamic connection that certainly caught my attention. At one point, and he's talking about Jews and democracy and how Jews need to be involved in this country and not walk away and continue to work on this democratic project. But at one point, he stops and looks at the congregation and says, how many of you have had a discussion in the past few years about where would you go if things got worse in this country? And more than half of the hands in the congregation went up. Hmm. Does that surprise you? Well, no, not exactly. Um, I think especially given the divisiveness politically that we've all lived through recently, the, the feeling like we were slipping away from democracy, that democracy still feels like it's at risk, that we could be one election away from seeing our constitutional values blown up. We have a former president who's running again, who's just said that maybe the constitution should, should be suspended. I think that for one thing, has led to a lot of conversations about whether this country is going to survive as a democracy and where you would go if you had to. And then you throw the, you know, the anti-Semitism into the mix, which I think is partly what um, Dana Milbank was writing about. Um, you, the, the, the fear that you know we could become, or we have already become targets, and that that seems to be growing worse, uh, maybe worse than it's ever been in, in my lifetime. Those things combined um, have prompted a lot more discussions than, than I ever imagined possible. So let me ask you, have you and Jen had this conversation? No, we haven't. Uh, I, I don't think it's gotten to the point where we have ever seriously thought about it. You know, there are moments when we go, oh, my God, if this happens, if that happens, we just what could we do? And we have had discussions, um, you know, would our children be better off? in the long run, like what's this country going to look like in 50 years? I think it's more than likely that we'll, the country will survive us, but what about our children and our grandchildren? We've had conversations like that, but not to the point that we're actually like checking with uh, immigration lawyers or looking at. Jan and I have actually, you know, had just chatted, you know, gosh, mm -hmm. where would we go if, and now that you've got this running controversy with uh, E and the normalization of anti-Semitism across the board in this country, it makes the conversation that much more real. And I think it is real in more than a few Jewish households, and I would say probably not all that different than this Washingtonian congregation where more than half of the congregation said, yes, they had been thinking about it. If you're not thinking about it, if you're not at least worried about the future of our country, you're not paying attention. And that brings us to Joseph, <laughs> of course. Everything and does. Joseph has an entanglement with his brothers that largely revolves around the relationship that Jacob had with Leah and Rachel, their mothers, and the um, lopsided love that Jacob evinced towards Rachel and the virtual hatred that he held for Leah. And because Joseph is the son of Rachel, 
This comes to a head. He is thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold as a slave. And he ultimately ends up in a dungeon in Egypt and is redeemed because of his ability to interpret dreams. And the dream that gets him out of jail is a dream about an upcoming famine in Egypt. And Joseph becomes sort of the economic minister of Egypt. He imposes a whole variety of an economic program on the country and ultimately kind of saves the day. This moment where a Jew of the diaspora, he's out of his normal land, and he is living in Egypt, and he brings this country to a very favorable moment where it could have been a disaster. And if you think about Jewish history, this is not a new story. And by the end of the book of Genesis, the Jews are living in Egypt, only to be enslaved as the book of Exodus opens. And so this is not a new story. Jews make contributions. Jews become involved in a society. And then the society turns on them. And I'm wondering how, how you interpret that and what you do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not only a Jewish uh, universal truth. It's, um, it's a universal truth in even a broader sense, I think, because look at our debates over immigration. Um, look, look at our debates over racism. You know, African-Americans are enslaved and brought here. Mexicans arrive. And once they get their, their footing, we begin to resent giving up power, losing control. Um, the outsider becomes uh, a threat to the people who are already in power. You know, we see this over and over again. And I think it's a, it's a sad universal truth that people who have something don't like to share or they're afraid of, of the newcomer. And the Jews have, you know, been the newcomer over and over again. It's interesting that I was focused on the uniqueness of this phenomena throughout Jewish history. Jews were brought to Poland to help in the economic system. And after 1492, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire is commenting about how foolish these Christians are in Spain. This brain trust is not the words he used, but the brain trust that are coming to his lands and the benefits that are, that are going to come from that. And yet, or in every case, the fortunes of these Jews who were brought in at one point and made a contribution to help or in some cases save a society became the focus. And, and I was looking at this as sort of a, a particular Jewish phenomenon. You made it more of a universal American phenomenon. You talked about blacks, other groups that are kind of come into this country in adverse situations. And when they rise up, there's resentment. Yeah, not just universal American, but universal globally, because I think that there's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of the outsider. And, you know, here comes Joseph, the ultimate outsider. Um, seems like he's assimilating, seems like he's being welcomed into this position of power, you know, interpreting dreams and making contributions. But um, it's not good enough. It, and, you know, you'll forgive me for uh, for connecting this to other pieces of American history. But, you know, I have a book on Martin Luther King coming out in May. And when you think about the dreamer, I couldn't help thinking about uh, August 28th, 1963, when King gives the I Have a Dream speech in front of 200,000 people in Washington. And it feels like after that, we are closer than we've ever been as a country to really healing our wounds of racism, our slavery, the, the impact of slavery, that we have this moment where, wow, there really is a possibility that 
that we could make this work as a as a multiracial democracy. And King gives us that hope. You know, he's Joseph in the way at that moment, telling us his dream. And then what happens? The very next day, J. Edgar Hoover writes a, writes a memo saying, he's too dangerous. He's too popular. We have to take him down. And that's what the FBI begins to do. So we we can't handle this dreamer. And, you know, I'm just hearing echoes of that as you talk about Joseph. I love the comparison you're making, but I want to pursue this a little bit more. Would you say that there is a difference between racism and anti-Semitism? Or do you think they're all in the same bag of hatreds? Wow, that's a really good question. I've never thought about that before. I mean, they're both deeply, deeply rooted. I think uh, anti-Semitism is older and and different in many ways, in part because, you know, racism is defined by skin color as opposed to religious beliefs. And in some ways that's worse. In some ways it's, it's maybe not as bad, um, but it's different. So I don't know. What do you think on that one? Uh, I definitely think there's a difference with very few exceptions. No people has been more regularly persecuted or exiled or have more attempts at being exterminated mm-hmm. than the Jewish people. And I, so I think that there is, some, there is a qualitative difference. And by the way, I would suggest that people of color have a very different understanding of racism than Jews have of anti-Semitism. I would suggest that people of color look at racism as an issue that begins with prejudice and moves to power. In other words, just as you said, it was a prejudice against them because of their skin color that whose effect was economic, all kinds of economic tools to keep them down as a society. So prejudice and power is kind of the lens that the black community understands their situation. Whereas when Jews talk about anti-Semitism, they begin with the notion of an irrational hatred of the Jew, an irrational hatred of the Jew. And the effect of that are, are fearful actions, whether it's a pogrom or the Holocaust, for that matter. But so it, it is um, irrational hatred that leads to fear. I would contend that that's, that part is the same in many ways, because um, there's nothing rational about fearing or, or hating people because of the color of their skin. It certainly leads to fear when you have to worry about being pulled over um, and violently uh, assaulted by police simply because your skin is, the, is the, what they perceive as the wrong color for a certain neighborhood. Um, that's something the Jews don't have to deal with. Um, so I think that that irrational fear is something both groups have experienced. Okay. Okay, I'm just not sure that the black community understands it quite that way, but maybe I'm, I might be wrong about that. But my point is that even from our vantage points, the Jewish people see anti-Semitism as an existential crisis. I happen to be in that camp, right? Um, mm-hmm. The fact that, that I would even think for a moment about, gosh, where would we go if things got worse? or things get sufficiently bad, where we just have to get out. Where would we go? Would be Israel? Where would we think? I'm I'm assuming it would be Israel. But my point is that that is a moment that I never thought I'd live to see. And yet a lot of Jews are sharing that fear. 
And I, and I want to suggest to you that I do think it's different. I don't think it's worse. And I'm not trying to create a values-based or, you know, this isn't the pain Olympics, if you will. I do think that anti-Semitism has severe dangers and, and the potential for violence. And that other forms historically have been worse in many ways and other forms of hatred against other groups. I'm not going to go down the road of comparing other groups because unfortunately they're all vulnerable. We've seen hate crimes against uh, gay people recently. There's certainly plenty of hate crimes against black people, but I think we should stick to the conversation of, of why anti-Semitism is worse now than it has been in, in generations and why some of this anti-Semitic vitriol seems to be acceptable uh, in ways that it wasn't even just a few years ago. And, and that's really troubling. Why do you think? I don't know. I think it's it's been allowed to breathe, and it's been it's not has not been um, refuted by the people we respect as our leaders in in the way that it should be. And certainly, social media seems to allow everybody to say whatever they want to say with with um, with no consequences. But I, I get tired of blaming everything on on social media. I don't know why we're we're seeing this upsurge. If you go back to Joseph, you study Egyptian society and what was going on historically, there were a whole variety of changes going on. There were wars, there were um, other regimes that came in, there were attacks on their religious system from within. And in these moments of change and upheaval, people, I believe, and the Israelites or the descendants of Jacob are the first recipients of this, Jews are seen as a danger. This notion that Jews are fifth column, they're other, they're different. And I think in this country, I think anti-Semitism in general is like a cancer that occasionally goes into remission. When the circumstances are right, it comes out in virulent forms. It's an easy excuse. This is the Jews are the problem. They have the money. They're controlling things. And when you have leaders who open the door to these kinds of conversations. I disagree with you about social media, but you have social media that is a very large megaphone that tends to not make distinctions about truth and lies. And so anti-Semitism can be in the ether and may and be normalized. I think that is a prescription, and I think that is, uh, that's where anti-Semitism comes from. This is the exact kind of uh, ground that anti-Semitism grows most freely. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I think absolutely social media has a lot to do with it. I think absolutely you've got leaders and, and celebrities who are fanning the flames, but I still don't really understand why you've seen this massive uptick. And, you know, you can understand why there'd be this response to the, the civil rights movement, to Martin Luther King. You know, suddenly it looks like he's really gaining uh, too much power for some people to handle. He's having too much influence. But we haven't had that kind of a dramatic change in Jewish power or Jewish you know, economic success or waves of Jewish immigrants all of a sudden. So you know, I'm still not sure why now, except for the fact that you know we've had some leaders and we've had some social media platforms that have made it more acceptable. Well, we haven't talked about Israel, and I don't think we'll have time today to go into that. But Israel has also been a factor where the negative publicity that's constantly focused on Israel and also has a, uh, a voice here as well. I guess I don't know that we're going to be able to answer this question, 
But I think this conversation has been illuminating in many ways, because I think we're two American Jews who are talking, and we are approaching the issue differently. We see it differently, and I don't see that as a negative, but I do want to underscore that we do see it differently. Moreover, I also think that the story of Joseph is uh, telling, because we're going back thousands of years, and the parallels to what happened to jo in Joseph's time and to his descendants are issues that I think we would do well to pay attention to. No question about that. We can agree on that. The Torah, once again, can offer a great guide to this kind of conversation, that it helps to step back. Someone once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the rhyming is chilling to me. On that note, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi.